the town of um, Caesarea Philippi, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he made one last trip to Capernaum, which is over on the northwestern side of the sea. And in that journey from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum, Mark and Luke tell us that they were discussing something together, kind of behind the scenes as they were walking along, and they didn't really discuss it with Jesus, it appears. But they get to finally their destination, and by the way, this will be the very last time, according to what we see in the Word of God, that he spends at his home base of Capernaum. And again, from that point, he will be heading to Jerusalem to die on the cross. We're going to be looking at what it is that they were discussing in a few moments. But before we get to that, we're going to finish chapter 17, where we left off the last time. And we'll begin with verse 24. Peter has been kind of in the forefront in these last few chapters. Remember that Peter was the one who spoke out and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said that flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And then just a short while later, Peter opens his mouth again, but this time from his own flesh, his own desire, his own hopes and dreams, he spoke out, Not so, Lord, may it never be when Jesus had said that he was going to be brought to Jerusalem to die on that fateful day that ultimately would happen and that he would be raised again on the third day. But Peter didn't hear that part of it. He heard the idea of Jesus going to suffer at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees and to die. That wasn't acceptable to Peter then, and that's when he spoke out those words, not so. And that's when Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. So Peter said some good things that he was commended for, and Peter said some not-so-good things that he was reprimanded for. Peter was oftentimes a spokesman for the entire group of twelve apostles. We see that in the Word of God. Most of the time it's Peter who takes the front of the stage, if you will, Whenever there is anything going on with regard to the disciples, he seems to have been selected by the Lord, along with James and John, separate from the other nine, for certain events and tasks and responsibilities that he wanted to lay upon them. And so those three were sort of elevated among the disciples to a little bit higher status, if you will, with regard to their walking with Jesus for those three and a half years, they must have thought perhaps they were indeed more useful to the Lord during that time. And what they thought perhaps would happen would be that they would be used by the Lord in the kingdom to a greater extent than the others might possibly be. And that really is what the discussion was as they went from Caesarea Philippi to Capernaum. But before we get to that story, they've arrived in Capernaum, and Matthew throws in this one story about Peter that none of the other gospel writers record for us. It's interesting. Keep in mind, Matthew is a tax collector originally, and so there's probably some 
kind of personal feelings that are being presented by Matthew as he relates this story that's given at the end of chapter 17. Read on with me from verse 24. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. Before we go any further, this isn't the Roman tax system. This is a temple tax, a toll that was paid by all the Jews 20 years and older. And it was initiated by Moses originally. But when Moses initiated this temple tax, and then it was the tabernacle toll, it was done for a reason. Moses was told by the Lord to number the people, and the people that would be numbered would be those men, only men, who are 20 years and older. And so he did that. And as in numbering the people, God told Moses to collect a toll, a tribute, for the upkeep of the tabernacle, which was the tent of tabernacle that they were just finishing up in construction of that. They needed to have some resources available to maintain the integrity of that tabernacle. And so God instructed Moses, this is how you're going to do that. You're going to ask everyone who was a male, 20 years or older, to give then it was called a half shekel. It's a weight of silver that was common among the Jews, used by the Jews for many, many years. It's about 30 or 35 cents worth of silver at today's market price. It wasn't much, but it was a, a lot to them. And it was a commitment to them that they would obligate themselves to keep the tabernacle in good condition. As far as we know, that tabernacle tax wasn't something that was instituted as an annual thing. As a matter of fact, it sort of got lost in their history to some degree until the time of one of the kings whose name was Joash. Joash happened to be a good king until his last days at least. But during the time of his earlier reign, he was the dear friend of the high priest, Jehoiada. And it was Joash who recognized the fact that those who had reigned before him had allowed the temple that Solomon had built to be totally destroyed and overrun by very, very carnal worship of other gods, idols in the temple grounds, the temple had gone into disarray, and Joash wanted that to be restored. So he reinstituted Moses' temple tax command and demanded again for the males 20 or over to give a half shekel for the upkeep of the temple. They brought in a whole ton of money, and it was good. They were able to restore the temple. They paid all of the wages that were needed to be paid for the contractors who were involved. It was a good thing. Then several years later, we hear of it again after the Babylonian captivity in the time of Nehemiah. And in Nehemiah's time, about 75 years 
or more into their having returned from the Babylonian captivity, Nehemiah establishes this as an annual tax, but only one-third of a shekel was required. And the people agreed to it, and so they provided for the upkeep of the temple year after year from Nehemiah's time until the time of Jesus. Every faithful Jew would be forced, or not forced, but encouraged, I should say, to pay that temple tax. It wasn't a law from God. It was an obligation that they, as faithful Jews, would be willing to make in the support of the temple. By the time of Jesus' day, they had raised the amount from one-third of a shekel back to one-half a shekel. And that's what is being asked for in this story. Peter is asked by those who collect that poll tax, hey, does your teacher pay that tax? Is he a faithful Jew? Peter said yes. End of story. He walks away, goes into the house, and this is amazing what is about to unfold. Verse 5 again, he said yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. Jesus spoke before Peter was able to speak about that situation. He, Peter was outside. Jesus had been inside. Jesus knows what is going on. And that's still the same today, by the way. He knows what's going on in every one of our hearts. Whatever our conversations are, actually the Word of God tells us that he knows what we say before we even say it. And so it is that Jesus knew what was going on with regard to Peter's confrontation that he had just had without Peter having to say a word about it. Peter came in and suddenly Jesus, anticipating what was about to unfold, speaks first. And he says, what do you think, Simon? Notice that he uses Peter's original God-given name, not Peter the Rock. Simon, son of Barjona. He just, what, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Well, that's an easy question. No king would charge his sons any kind of a tax. He's part of the king's family. So the obvious answer would be, well, from strangers. And that's what Peter says in verse 26. Peter said to him, from strangers. Okay, I agree with that. That's good. That's a good answer, Peter. Then Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. The sons are free. Now, it could be understood in a couple of different ways with that statement that Jesus makes. He is the Son of God, and God is the one who basically has authority over the temple and everything else that goes on in the Jews' lives. So the Father would not tax Jesus the Son And it could be that Jesus is referring to himself in that regard. No king would charge his sons. The sons are free. But it also could mean, and I believe this is a better understanding of what he is trying to allude to, is he is the king. And Jesus did say that his body is the temple. And Jesus is associating himself in that level of authority over the temple, and his sons then would be his disciples. So that is a good way, I think, of understanding what Jesus was alluding to here 
Rather than just speaking of himself, he's speaking about himself as a king and all of those who follow after him. We're not subject to that tax. The sons are free. That's good news. And then he says in verse 24, uh, 27, Nevertheless, notwithstanding, in some of your translations, but, take note of what he says, lest we offend them, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened his mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Nevertheless, lest we offend them. Jesus didn't want to unnecessarily offend those who are outside of the faith. But when you think of the word offense, in respect to what the Bible says, there are a few things that you need to understand, and I hope that you do. Offenses will come. And Jesus actually did offend the Pharisees and the scribes. Just a short while ago, a few weeks back, we were studying that portion of Scripture where Jesus had spoken to the Pharisees and scribes and called them hypocrites. And his disciples came to him afterwards and said, Do you know that you offended them? So there is reason to be an offense to those who are on the outside. But not this. This would be unnecessary offending. And that's what Jesus is here talking about. The cross is an offense to those who are on the outside. We proclaim the cross. Ten Commandments have become an offense to many of those who are on the outside. But we proclaim that the fact is God gave those Ten Commandments and they are good moral statements that need to be adhered to and understood and applied in our lives. I want to divert just for a few moments because one of our own, Rick McLaughlin, spent a good deal of money he bought a granite stone from India. It finally was shipped. And he had a person who would be able to take that granite stone and carve into that stone the Ten Commandments. And he placed that Ten Commandments on his personal property next to the Lincolnville Beach. The first day it was seen, uproar hit the Bangor Daily News. Everyone was talking about it on Facebook. And his family were taking a brunt of those complaints, one after another, hundreds of them, about this foolishness that Rick McLaughlin had done by putting that terrible tombstone, as it was described, on a public beach. Well, it wasn't on the public beach. It was on his private property at the beach. But the result was so much anger, so much hatred being manifest that his daughter and his wife were fearful. 
Ten Commandments, that's an offensive thing when you start talking about God's statements of what not to do or what to do. They don't want to hear that. It's an offense. But Peter was told by Jesus in this portion of our study that there are times when you just don't want to take that initiative if it's not something that's going to be of greater importance than the cross or the Ten Commandments, but something that's more or less inconsequential. Don't rock the boat, Jesus is saying, lest we offend them. There's a better way to reach them. I love the fact that Jesus told Peter, go fishing. Peter was a fisherman. He loved to fish. Now, usually he cast nets in the open sea. This time, Jesus tells him to take a hook on a rope or string, drop it into the water, off the shore, and the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a silver coin there. Well, the Greek language gives us the value of the coin. It is called in the Greek a statera, a stator. It is also the equivalent of one shekel. Remember that the cost of the toll that was to be paid was a half shekel. It was precisely the amount of money that was needed to pay that tax for both Peter and Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't give us any more detail. He doesn't tell us what actually took place. Did Peter go as he was instructed? Did he see that which Jesus had said in the mouth of the fish? I answer that as, though it's not written here, absolutely yes, without a doubt. He wanted to show Peter something, and he shows us something about this as well. He can and does provide, even when we don't think it's possible. This was a miracle. Who would have known that somewhere, some time long ago before this, a fish was in the water, saw something shining on the floor of the sea, and as fish often do, goes after that shining object and puts it in its mouth and swims away. Apparently too big to swallow, the fish doesn't let go of it, keeps it in its mouth. And sometime after that, the fish comes close to the shore, next to Capernaum, where Peter happens to be dropping a line into the water with a nice tasty worm on a hook, and the fish says, oh, I'm hungry, and grabs that hook, and Peter hauls it in. How do you expect that to be something Jesus would know about? Because he's God. Of course he does. He knows about all things, and he can control the fish of the sea as much as he can control any event in our lives. This is a wonderful story. It's a wonderful miracle that Jesus does. And I believe it's a prelude to what we are going to be looking at next in chapter 18. Keep in mind that Jesus has said, we don't want to offend them, so let's take care of this. And then Jesus, as he's in Capernaum, with his disciples, in the house, chapter 18, verse 1 begins the story. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Take note of the fact that Matthew records who then. And the reason the word then is important is because it implies that they had been discussing it before they asked Jesus this question. And Luke and Mark give us that combination of thoughts to agree with that particular understanding. Because they tell us that they had been already discussing these things. It was always on their minds. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? We've seen it already in previous studies. They had that thought that one of them would be seated at the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom, and the rest of them would be somehow subservient to that one, or maybe a pair of them. Remember, later on, it happens again. John records it, that both John and James, at the prompting of their mother, come to Jesus, and she's the one, apparently, who asks the question, Lord, would, would you let my two sons sit beside you, one on the right and one on the left, in your kingdom? Later on, they're arguing just before the Passover about who is greatest in the kingdom. It was a common, common concern that they all had. Now, most people think, and it's probably true, that they were, all of them, thinking, I'm going to be greatest. And James and John seem to imply that, as far as the record is concerned, they thought they should be. But I wonder if some of them thought, well, you know, I'm not really all that important. Alpheus might have said, you know, I've been following Jesus all this time, and I've never been really given any highlight. I've not been asked to do anything special But Peter has, but James and John has. So maybe some of them were saying, I think Peter should be the one. But for the most part, I'm pretty convinced that each one of those who were arguing the most were saying, I'm the one. Certainly Peter had credentials. James and John did also. Maybe Matthew did because Matthew had been a tax collector and it's certain that in the kingdom a good tax collector would be very important, high up on the list of importance in that kingdom. Or maybe it was Judas. Judas who said, well, Matthew might have been the tax collector and knew a lot about money, but he gave me the money bag. You see what I'm saying? They all had reason to think, I'm the one who will be greatest in the kingdom with Jesus as he sits on the throne of David. Oh, I can't wait till that happens. That was their hope, expectation. Jesus pops the balloon. Verse 2 says, Then Jesus called a little child to him and said, after setting him in the midst of them, Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Take note of what Jesus is saying here. The very first part of that is most important. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, and the word really means unless you turn. You know, we think of conversion as an experience that we have when we come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of our sins, and that's exactly right. But that's a narrow point of 
understanding with regard to that word. In the original language, it's more effective when you think of it as a fact that they needed to turn from whatever they were thinking to something completely different. They needed to turn from that, be converted from that understanding, because it was wrong for them to think so. They needed to turn and become as little children. Not to be the greatest, but to even enter into the kingdom. Think about that. Jesus is telling them, you've got to first be born again. He had told that to Nicodemus in John 3.3. Nicodemus, as a leader of the Pharisees, didn't understand it. He said, what do you mean, born again? Am I, I must I, enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus said, no, are you the leader, the teacher of Israel, and don't you understand He's talking spiritual things, not flesh. They had no excuse. They should have known what he meant by this. You've got to be as a child. Well, what does he mean? Childlike? Yes. Childish? Oh, no. They were already being childish in their arguing among one another. But childlike, you've got to be like a child, Jesus said. Now this child that he puts on his lap to speak these words was probably a young boy, perhaps three to five years of age. And think about that. The child came willingly. He called the little child to him and set him in the midst of them. And the child came. And he becomes an object lesson to those adults who are around that one little young lad. What about this being like a child? What does he mean by that? Well, you could say and argue correctly that the child is likely to be, well, humble. The child isn't going to be thinking great thoughts about grandeur of of sitting at the highest place in a feast or next to the king or the prince, or the queen, or anybody else of a great authority. The child isn't going to be thinking about that kind of thing. They'll be humble and allow whatever an adult gives to them to receive it gladly. The Lord loves to give good gifts unto His children. We sang a song this morning talking about the fact that we are His children. And we should come as children, humbly. We're teachable if we come as a child. We don't come with preconceived ideas. We don't come with thoughts of grandeur. We don't come with any kind of conclusions that we will have already made that interfere with what we really ought to be with who we really ought to be. Children have no ambition. They don't fight for a better position. They don't take advantage of others to get the better offer of a position at work or whatever it might be that we're trying to seek after at the hurt of some other person. Children don't typically do that. Greatness had nothing to do with entering into the kingdom. Status, I'm a Jew. 
Paul said that. A Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he gave his lineage. He talked about the fact that he was sat under Gamaliel, the great teacher of Israel in that day. But all of those things were to Paul, after his having come to Jesus, by faith in Jesus, as dung. Cow manure. None of it was of any value to him. Why? Because he learned to be content in no matter what his estate. He understood the principle that Jesus is applying here, and I, I hope that all of us do as well. Come as a child, Jesus said. But verse 4, he continues, and I want you to understand, children don't offend others as well. In their humility, in their lack of pride, in their desire not to be anything but teachable, in that state of mind, which is what we all ought to approach our God in that same state, we're not likely to offend Jesus says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you enter in through humility, and in humility you are proclaimed by the one who is king to be great in the kingdom. Jesus gave a parable when he said, A king has a banquet. And you're invited. You come, in, you come into the banquet room. And if you walk up to the front of the room and sit yourself near the king, you might find yourself quite embarrassed because the king is likely to say to you, uh, that is not your place. You belong over there. But if you come in and you sit in the very last place and the king observes where you are seated and he points to you and says, no, 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 you, you belong up here. He's talking about the difference between pridefulness, where you put yourself in a place of glory, as opposed to humility, where you put yourself in a place of non-glory. Jesus said, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And the writers of the letters of more than one letter, James addresses it, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. That's the idea that is being presented here. Whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom. Why? Not because they've done anything, but because of what He will do when you come in that way as a humble servant, a child. And then he says in verse 5, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. That's why... We need to be willing to allow those who come in in that way to enter into the flock and greeting them and accepting them in a way that causes them to be feeling like they want to stay. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. That's a great promise. But then in verse 6 he warns, but nevertheless, Notwithstanding, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. 
That is a severe warning, is it not? Jesus is basically saying, look, if you offend one of these little ones, and that is the word in the original language, causes one to sin or causes one to stumble. The word in the original language is scandalizo. It, it means scandalize. That's what we get our English word scandalize from that Greek word scandalizo. And what it means is causes one to stumble. And in this case, it's translated causes that little one to sin. But that word, scandalizo, is the same word in verse 6 of chapter 18 as the word that Jesus used in verse 27 of chapter 17 where he said, we are not to offend them, those who are outside. Now he's saying, we are not to offend others who are in the church. We're just simply not to do that. It's wrong. It needs to be dealt with when it does take place because we all know it does. Now, that's not a good thing to acknowledge that. It's needful. But it's not good to recognize the fact that it is present in our very lives. So he gives that warning, and it's very, very clear that he makes sure that every one of his disciples, the followers of Jesus, are hearing these words. And he's going to go on to talk more about these things in a way that will cause them, all of us, and the disciples as well, of course, to recognize the fact that Jesus is pretty serious about this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, who causes me to stumble, who offends them, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. Now, we're not talking about the little stone that they would use in the kitchen to grind grain. We're talking about the millstone that is only moved by work animals like a donkey or an ox, a large millstone. He's using that as a really amazing illustration, way over the top illustration, to point out that, well, when you put that millstone on your neck, you're definitely going under. And you won't be coming back up out of that water. The Jews did not kill anyone by drowning, typically. There are only a handful of cases where that was done. They had other means. They stoned them to death, but they did not drown. The Egyptians and Romans and the uh, Phoenicians did drown, oftentimes, their prisoners. It was customary for them to do so. Not so for the Jews. Jesus is talking here about something that was not normally done in their experience. So he's driving home a point, a very, very strong point. And then he goes on to say even more. He says, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now the offense is coming this time from the world and addressed to the believer. So Jesus is touching all the bases here. And in this particular case, he's talking about those who are on the outside offending the believers. And friends, Jesus says it very clearly here, offenses must come. You can expect it. You can believe that people are going to be angry at people like Rick McLaughlin who puts the Ten Commandments on his own property. You can believe that if you put a cross on your private property, you're going to have your neighbors complain that that's something they don't want to have to see every day. 
And more and more we're seeing that in public places. They want to erase every detail that they can possibly erase with regard to God's commandments. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C., you know that that's going to be quite a task because everywhere, every public building is plastered with Scripture or references to God. Our dollar bills are still in God we trust. Our coinage, everything they look at, reminds them there is a God. And that was what the Founding Fathers desired. That's what they wanted. That's what they expected, that this country would be able to be founded upon. And it was. But over the years, that basic truth has deteriorated in these last couple of decades. It has become terribly, terribly offensive to anyone who is outside the church who thinks Christianity needs to go. And there's a lot of people who believe that. There's a lot of people who believe that in our public school systems. Look at what they are teaching our kids. Look at the books that they're promoting. All kinds of sexually explicit books for kids from kindergarten on up through 12th grade. There is no excuse for such things. They want to be in your face and they have done that very, very extensively throughout the education system. That's why I believe public schools are going down in terms of attendance and private schools, Christian schools in particular, or homeschooling is on the increase. Some people are waking up to this. But the educators, they hate Christianity and they want to do all they can to throw it out, get rid of it. Their mindset is a worldview that they learned when they were kids. And every success, successing generation is, succeeding generation rather, is going to continue to move down that slippery slope. And I believe eventually it's going to be at the cost of our freedom as a nation. Offenses will come. What are we going to do about it? We're going to stand on God's Word. And we will not be willing to change. Or will we? Woe to that man to whom offenses come. I am feeling so very sad that I know there are teachers who are filling these kids with such terrible, terrible ideas. What the cost to them is going to be if they don't change, if they continue in their ways, if their hearts are completely hardened and they will not turn, you know their destiny. So does Jesus. He's going to speak of that. In verse 8, he says, If your hand or foot causes you to sin, again, scandalizo. If your hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, Jesus is speaking hyperbole here. Hyperbolically, he doesn't want you to do that physically. He's just using this as a means of conveying to us how serious this really is. If you are in a place where you cause yourself to sin, if your hand does it, cut it off. And I submit to you that if your hand causes you to sin, you've got another hand, so cutting that hand off isn't going to stop the problem. It's a heart issue. And that's really what Jesus, Jesus is drawing home to us. It's a heart issue. And that's where it all begins. 
It's better for you to enter into life lame and maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. Forever everlasting fire. Eternal everlasting fire. You're getting the picture. And if your eye causes you to sin, pornography, all kinds of things that we see with our eyes, that's just one of many. If it causes you to sin, you can't get away from it, go ahead, pluck out your eye. But you still got another eye. And even if you pluck out both eyes, you still have a mind that's filled with those images. What are you going to do? You've got to treat it at the source, the heart. But he says, if your eye causes you to sin, again, the same words, scandalizo, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. So Jesus is saying, you've got a choice. We all have a choice. It's either one or the other. It's not a combination of the two. You can't get by doing those things if you expect to be in the presence of a holy God. Jesus is making it very clear. A choice must be made between evil and good. Let me read it again. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. The word translated hell here is Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal place outside of Jerusalem where they burned trash. Burning trash took place 24-7. It's a picture of eternal hell. And that's why Jesus uses the word Gehenna. It really does illustrate for you the intensity of pain and suffering that will be experienced by those who enter into that place. Now, oftentimes, in many of our translations, in the New Testament, we see the word Hades, which is a Greek word. In the Old Testament, we see the word Sheol, which is a Hebrew word, and they both imply the place where people go after they die. The place of departing spirits. Now, there are shades of meaning between those two words that we're not going to need to discuss here, but Hades and Sheol is nothing at all like this final destination that is being described by Jesus here. Yes, there is torment in Hades. Jesus told us that. Luke's Gospel in chapter 16 tells us an incident where a rich man and a poor man both entered into that place, one in Abraham's bosom and the other in torments. They could see one another. They were in Hades. That was before Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, Paul tells us Christ descended and he led captivity captive. Now, there are various degrees of understanding with regard to that, but the implication is those who were righteous souls who were among that man whose name was Lazarus and Abraham and all those who were in Abraham's bosom in that place where they were not being tormented as the rich man had been, those righteous souls were brought to heaven with Christ when he was raised from the dead. And every soul, every believer who trusts trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, every person who has been forgiven of our sins, when we die, we will, our bodies go into the grave. Our souls will go to be with Christ. We will ascend into glory. 
That's why Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Oh, it's much gain. But here, Jesus is warning those who would offend others, those who would be an offense to a brother or a sister, those who are on the outside, who are looking in and offending Christian souls, they are going to suffer eternal damnation. If they continue. These are strong words of Jesus. But, He then provides hope for everyone. In verse 10, He tells a story. He says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels also see the face of My Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of those goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains to seek that one which is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying that it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. All should come to repentance through Jesus Christ. It's God's will that no one should perish. Jesus is emphasizing that here. He talks about the fact that that's their destiny if they choose that particular path. But if they were willing to just repent from that, if they would be willing to turn from that mindset that has driven them away from God and come back to Him, Paul tells it this way, He has seen people turn from idols to the living God. He's experienced a miraculous event in the lives of those who have come to Christ through faith in Him. And he's expressing this in a way that causes me and I hope causes you to say, yes, Lord, that's for me. I want to turn from those idols, from those things that kept me from God. I want to turn away from them. I want to turn and come in the direction of a God who loves me and cares for me and desires the very best for me. I want to turn to Him for the salvation that He alone can give. I want to turn to Him for eternal life because otherwise I'll experience eternal death and damnation. Forever and ever and ever the choice is simply given with no other options. But Jesus here in this passage that we just read says, it's God's will that you go in that direction. It's God's will that you say yes to Jesus. It's not the will of the Father that any one of these little ones should perish. Put yourself in that. It's not God's will that you should perish. And you who have accepted Christ will not perish You who have accepted Christ are set free from the burden, the pain, the suffering that is theirs, but not yours because you're born again. You're a new creation in Christ. You've been set free, no longer under the law, no longer under sin, but you have been liberated from that to serve the living God. I can't imagine making that wrong choice. But there are many still outside of these walls, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, 
in the shops that we frequent. They've chosen a different path. God help them to turn before it's too late. 